Once again, we're one week away from completing the book of John, where we titled this year-long series. We didn't know it was going to be a year, but we titled it uh, Jesus Christ Unplugged, uh, and we have striking footage of his words and his works. Um, John was written so that unbelievers would peep Jesus' highlight reel and be blown away and put their faith in him. Believers would peep Jesus' highlight reel and come to the conclusion, both of them, that he indeed is the Christ, the one that God promised would come as a solution to the world's problem, uh, and that through him they'd have life in his name because he is the Son of God, not just a great man. Uh, and so uh, we've been going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and um, we're one week away from completing um, today, uh, we want to actually um, come in for a landing because we're in a chapter that is perceived to be the epilogue for the book. Um, it's believed to be that after chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, which says now, uh, he did more stuff, but these things were written so that you would believe that he's the son of God, he's the Christ, and that by believing you'd have life in his name, uh, it's believed to be that that was the original end of the Gospel of John. However, um, and people differ in their view, but uh, unanimously the original writer seems to uh, bring closure for the sake of the community he was writing to, the, what we believe called the Johannine, John's community that he was discipling, uh, that he wanted to bring closure to the book, even as he prefaced the book with John chapter 1, where he starts with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That whole chapter is like a prologue. This is believed to be an epilogue. So we're coming in for our landing. Uh, and we've been talking about the resurrection. Um, the resurrection is the climax of Jesus' words and works because without the resurrection, we wouldn't know what to think about the crucifixion. Was the crucifixion Jesus getting what he deserved? Did he slip up along the way and death got him like it gets every man or woman? Or resurrection proves that death didn't get Jesus because of sin of his own. In fact, he paid for sin and then got up uh, to be proved that he wasn't a sinner like us. He merely was being a sin substitute, uh, one who paid for the sin of sinners. And so we're in chapter 21. Uh, we've been talking about the resurrection. The importance of the resurrection can't be overemphasized. Um, it, again, I don't know other than Easter um, what the like if people make a big deal about resurrection, especially our generation. We're being taught to like messages that are talking about our coming out of circumstances. We're being taught and fed messages that focus on us getting our blessing. It's our season. Things are going to get better. Uh, the whole nine. I don't know how many times somebody can rock us apart from Easter uh, with the resurrection. However, uh, if you'll begin by just starting with me, First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, I just want to look at a passage there because it's there that we see uh, 
that the, the fact that the resurrection is not just a Bible college doctrine that you can sort of overlook because until I die or think I'm about to die or mourn someone who has died, uh, I don't really get hype about the resurrection. It looks too far down the line. And if I'm talking about Jesus's resurrection is too far in the past. The resurrection is one of those things that if you're a Christian, it's supposed to be central enough for you to divide. If somebody says uh, there's no resurrection or Jesus didn't raise from the dead, it's enough for you to say, well, I can't consider you a Christian. That's just how serious the resurrection is. The resurrection altered the lives of people who were, uh, who were shaky up until the resurrection. People who dropped the ball, slipped, sort of got out of line. The resurrection came to bring people back and to confirm them in the ministry and give them fuel or for the journey. And so let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to start with chapter 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, excuse me, is in vain and your faith is in vain. You can't stress this issue of the resurrection. Nobody should be indifferent Paul goes on to say, wait a minute, if there's no resurrection, then what are we doing? Like, we're being good for nothing, and we're going to church for nothing, and we're preaching for nothing. He says, uh, verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. If, if dead people are not raised, they just go return to the essence. They just go back, disintegrate, and that's that. Good riddance. If dead people don't get up again, if they're just mystical, misty, smoke-like Creatures that just roam the earth trapped in the never world uh, and they don't get bodies and tangibly get back up. He says, then we're misrepresenting it because that's what we've been preaching. And that means that even preachers like me, Pastor Eve, for the last few weeks, we've been harping on resurrection appearances, which are the types of things if you were in a courtroom People would say, well, wait a minute, but did you see it? You say he did it, but did you see it? I didn't see it, but my man told me. They'd be like, excuse me, next, who saw it, first of all? Well, these are people who say, wait a minute, I'm not just saying I like Jesus so much, it's just hard for me to believe he's gone. This not. I'm saying I saw him. Resurrection. It says here, verse 16, for if the dead... Has uh, If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Now, we just talked about sins. People, they don't come to grips with you got to pay. Like sins have to be paid for. I, I knocked over some strawberries the other day. And then I said, like, well, we got it. Like I didn't have to pay for them. So like it's hard for me to sympathize, but the people who own those strawberries have to pay for them. Somebody's got to pay for them. But I was able to just walk out like, man, so strawberries sure look good on the floor that I knocked over. Like, but I didn't get a sense of the cost of that because I don't have to pay. Some of us don't realize that sins have to be paid for. So we're not we don't like. It doesn't register to us that when you talk about sin, when you talk about death, when you talk about a cross, when you talk about Jesus, it's a big deal. 
It sparks worship songs. It sparks, once again, tears and uh, like worshiping Jesus and like pulling away from your friends and focusing on them. And now he says here, it sparks talk about a resurrection. Because if not, we're still in our sins. We die thinking we're straight. That's just like me. Every time I turn around, there's a bill that's coming that I thought was paid. And I'm looking, and I'm like, but I thought I paid it. And it's like, nope. And now it's accumulated stuff. Same thing. It's like you die, you going up there, you think you're going to heaven because you think you're scot-free. Your sins have been removed just to find out there's no resurrection from the dead. So your sin tab is still yay long. The dude that you put your trust in is there. And here you are, still in your sins. So it's a big deal to the apostles. Sometimes people say, well, even if God is not real, even if Jesus is not real, at least I lived a better quality life. You know, I stopped smoking because I thought that was a right response to my salvation. So I didn't die of lung cancer. And somebody also say, yeah, well, you know, like, at least I stopped sleeping around so I didn't catch any diseases. So there's a truth to that, that let's say Jesus and the resurrection is a hoax. But thinking and believing in him made you sort of clean up a little bit, right? Let's just say. Look what he says in the next verse, 19. If in, oh, uh, verse 18 first. Then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If all you got is a better life than this life, he says, man, we, then we, we should be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The beauty wouldn't be, well, Christ got up, but we all stay down. The beauty is he's the first fruits of those raised from the dead. That first fruits mean there's other fruit coming. You wouldn't call it first fruits if there was no more fruit coming. You just call it fruit. He's the first fruits, which means he's the blueprint for what it's going to be like. So just as he got up, he's like, "Woo! I got your, like, I'm the first fruits of what it's going to be. You all are going to get up like this. You're going to beat death. Well, you, like, that's why death, where's your sting? Grave, where's your victory? Death, where's your victory? Grave, where's your sting? So, uh, the bottom line is, as we're talking about resurrection, we're going to be at the third appearance that he made to his disciples, reiterating, I'm up. Again, to, like, to peep the, the passion, like, to see him beaten down and bloodied and disfigured then to see him up like no swelling no cuts and lacerations only the the tangible proof that the same one that was crucified is up not a stunt double he ain't bring his twin down like dang we got to keep their hope alive come down for me you ain't catch the beat down i got so, resurrection, a big deal. The apostles uh, made a big deal about it. We make a big deal about it. So now let's go back to John. John, last week we talked about this rocking you. This not just being, okay, you're right. This is chill. You, you got, you, it makes sense. It'll work. Like it rocking you. So we talked about it rocking people when we look at the resurrection's ability to comfort 
comfort people who place their stock in him, people who place their weight. Remember, not people who, if Jesus is a lie, they sort of still are okay because they had their faith sort of diversified. A little bit of Muhammad because if he's really God, I sort of am chill there because I sort of like believed in him too. And a little bit of Buddha and a little bit of this one and a little bit of pastor and bishop. And like, like my, everything is riding on Jesus. If he is a fake, I am done. But since he's not a fake, I'm, I'm saved. It bringing comfort when you're sitting and you want to mourn. You don't have to go back to Jesus' tomb like, you know, in the Chinese movies. And they're like, oh, pops, you know, when times get hard, you go back to the tomb. And like, if only you were still here. I remember when you were here, but I, I'm sorry, I'm going to get back up and I'm going to avenge my brother's death. And you're talking to the grave. Like, we don't go and visit his grave. And uh, it, we're comforted by the resurrection truth because we've invested everything in him. He said a lot of stuff. Uh, we said resurrection rocks you because it brings confirmation. It's promises. Jesus made all these promises like when you're going to keep them. But if he died and it's it, it's like that. But he died before he, he kept the promise. Like, dang, now I'm mad because he died. But I'm also mad because the stuff I wanted him to do, he's not going to be able to do now because he's dead. It confirms his promises because he's not dead. And so... Uh, he is going to confirm his promises, even as he already came back and started doing it in the life of the disciples. I told you your joy, your, your, your mourning was going to turn to joy. And it says they saw him and they rejoiced. I told you that I'd be with you to the end of the age. And they see, yo, he's here like he is going to be with us to the end of the age. Confirms his power. It confirms that Jesus is stronger than Satan, stronger than death, stronger than all the things that trip us up and keep us down. Once again, we worship Jesus because he's not just like a better one of us. He's unlike us. He's in another class by himself. And his power is so powerful that the, the, the enemy that has been able to take out our best. Moses is one of our best. We're talking about a dude that was able to lead almost two million people across a desert. We went and did um, impulse, uh, taking the pulse of the city. And it was about what? Maybe 30 of us. And it was like drama just trying to all get on the train and all get off the train and make sure you didn't leave anybody and stop at the light and all kinds of stuff. Rally for, at the food court, find each other. Like Moses, I mean, we're talking about one of our best. Moses leading 2,000 people through all kinds of terrain, and yet he fell short. Jesus looked and said, yo, they said, are you better than Jacob? Like, you know, like our best. Like, you ain't better than Jacob. Jesus says, come on, man. Jacob gave you water, and you coming back here every afternoon for more. He says, come get some water from me. You'll never thirst again. He says, Solomon built this temple. And I, I forgot what the length of time, but it was mad years. I, I, Solomon built this temple. Surely you're not greater than Solomon, are you? He said, man, one greater than Solomon is here, man. Destroy this temple three days later. Watch me bring it back. I used to like this kind of talk because, what, like, back in the days, Christians were always punked by Muslims. Back in the days when hip-hop was really the voice of the nation of Islam, I used to like, like, you, it, Jesus wasn't, he didn't get you cool points on the street. He's the one that got you laughed at. Oh, you serve a white man's religion. You know, around my way, it was primarily, you know, blacks. And so they were like, ah, yeah, you, you worship a blonde, uh, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed devil. And, you know, you just needed something to come back. Like, yo, man, man. Yo, Muhammad is still in the grave, B. And, then, and you saw it like trying to use stuff that only Christians get excited about because only Christians agree with. Once again, rocked by the resurrection. Like, he's still in the grave, B. You looking around to give high five, but nobody there to give high five because I was the only believer on the block. Um, 
that like got rocked off the resurrection. Uh, but he says, yo, uh, the resurrection confirmed that he, his promises and that he'll continue to make promises. The resurrection confirms his power, that he's better than everybody. That's the whole Bible. He's better than everybody. And please, let us be a room full, not one person that plays Jesus Christ any lower than the best. It confirms his perfection. The resurrection was God's way to announce he was perfect. He died perfect. It's what we call, he, he vindicated him. He got him off the hook. I wonder if Jesus tripped, but we're going to see. Because if, if he don't come up, that means that death got him too. Because death only gets sinners. Death can only hold sinners. He got back up. We saw the resurrection affirms the commission. We don't just get excited over Jesus and come and have church and love Jesus and just talk Jesus stuff and get bumper stickers on our cars and keychains and like, like we're rocked with this info to fuel us to go out on what we call a commission or to as the father sends me, Jesus says, so send I you. Now, anybody now he, he said it another way. If anybody would come after me, he must take up his cross. Now, after seeing what taking up the cross looks like, you need a lot of incentive to take up your cross too and follow him. And that's why Jesus had to rock them with, look, I can walk on water. I can feed people with just a lunch. I can feed 5,000 plus. I can raise somebody else from the dead. I can raise from the dead. I, like, all these things are incentives. Now, as the Father sent me, so send I you. And so what we're seeing is that the commission, and the mission, he said, is, one, it requires me to load you with, like, the way I did it, like, the way I lived a successful missionary life was by the power of the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. Like, you can't do it without that. Like, you, you need the power. Like, I got one of those new um, weed whackers. Well, so it's a weed whacker. And it, it's like, it's cordless, black and decker. And you, you got to attach these batteries to the end. And, like, if ever you, if the battery's out, your weed whacker doesn't work. Still got all the hardware, no power. Same thing. We can be on the block, all fresh dip, skull caps in the wintertime, fur around your coat, tell me some, yeah, ah, let me talk to you about Jesus. But if the Spirit of God or the power source is not in you, n no power, no impact, only what you'd get if a non-believer said, hey, yo, ah, let me tell you about Jesus. Then he says, when the Spirit of God comes, he sends you on this mission to deal with this issue of forgiveness. We talked about that. He says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins have been forgiven. He says, if you don't, their sins have been retained. And we went through some of the views, but the proclamation of the gospel divides audiences right in half. And some people fall on it. I don't believe that. And those are the people we have to tell them, well, there's no other name given under heaven, given to men by which we must be saved. So you're still in your sins. Once again, he said, if Jesus didn't resurrect, you're still in your sins. Or if you reject Jesus, you're still in your sins. Because the resurrected Jesus is not the one who paid for your sins. Then the people over here who are like, I still feel burdened. But is Christ the one you're trusting? Yes. Well, then your sins are forgiven, even when you don't feel it. And so he says, this is the mission that God is sending us on, fueled by the resurrection. It also confronts unbelief we dealt with. Because God came back for Thomas and said, 
who said, I will never believe until I see the holes and I feel his wounds. And the Bible says that Jesus came back and said, well, here, do what you said. Stop this believing and believe. Rocked by the resurrection. And so now today we look at, for the people who are rocked, sometimes we need one more reminder or we just need to be refreshed. And so we want you to leave this series understanding, one, the preeminence or the bigness of Jesus Christ, the glory of Jesus Christ. We want you to also see yourself as enlisted in his army if you're a disciple. If you've trusted Christ, he didn't just give you a ticket out of hell. He also has sent the spirit of God in you, not just so you can get your praise on, but so that you can have the power to go out here and join him on a journey. And so today I want to deal with what I've, uh, what I've titled Jewels for the Journey, Jewels for the Journey. Uh, only because if you, if you adopt this mindset that we're on a journey with Jesus, for Jesus, there's some things that you need to be reminded of that he reminded his people of after all was said and done. Let's read chapter 21. After, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is another word for or name for the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter... Thomas, called the twin, or Didymus, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going to go fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children or lads or youngin', do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself, uh, threw himself in the, uh, dang, stripped for the, threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them. Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Get rocked off the word, if nothing else. Right now, I want to give us jewels for the journey. I want us to remember that he's sending us out. He's sending you out if you have trusted in Jesus Christ. And it's a journey. It's not an event. It's a journey. One of the things that we're finding is people are... are we're sprinters, we're not marathon runners. And that's why we can recall days when we were a lot more what we wish we were. 
We wish we were what we used to be. You know why? Because if you were to look at us at that point, we were running so well. And somewhere along the line, we ran out of gas. Somewhere along the line, we took a detour. And that's because this is a journey. And now here are some, jewel, some uh, jewels for the, for the journey. The first one is that God knows where you are. God knows where you are. Verse 1 to 3a. Let's read that. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. Some people like think that... One of the problems here is that the disciples now seem to be going back to something that Jesus had called them away from, which was fishing. Some people believe that this is an evidence that now that Jesus was gone, they still sort of were foggy about their mission, still sort of foggy about their commitment. And this is the proof. They went back to their old life, which was fishing. Some people say, nah, you're reading into it. This is not them going back like they were backsliding. This may just show that they sort of didn't have a sense of purpose. They sort of were just drifting. No Jesus now. Cats are in disarray. Uh, the Phoenix Suns have a, a popular point guard called Steve Nash. One of the things, it's a, like he's a point guard. He, he sets up the offense. When he's on the floor, it seems like the team is real organized and they run their plays crisp. But when he sits down, the team goes in disarray. They said that's sort of what this is. The point guard, the one who gives instruction is gone. And so they've got, like they don't know what to do with themselves. So they say, ah, let's go fishing. Others say, nah, it's neither of those. This is just them. He told them to go to Galilee. This is the, uh, an innocent uh, day of saying, I still got to eat, so let me go fishing. Regardless of which one of these it is, one of the things we see is that God knows where they are because Jesus reveals himself to them by this sea. We've seen him reveal himself to them in Jerusalem. Now we see him show up. Now, it's not like the text is running it like he popped up at the, that room again where they were like, oh, dad, you're not meeting here looking for like we left. Catch us in Galilee. <laughs> he shows up at the, in a different location and he shows up. And it's at night. They're fishing and Jesus reveals himself to them there. God knows where you are, whether it's geographically. Uh, God knows where you are. He knows where you live. Uh, God knows where you are mentally. We don't know what their state of mind is. People are speculating. Are these dudes just like lost in a, a lack of a purpose? Or the, like God knows where they are in their purpose. He knew where Thomas was mentally because of what Thomas said. And he made a trip back to where Thomas was just to clarify where Thomas was. He knows where you are spiritually. God knows if you're on task, if you're just, if you're, if you're, nah, I'm just fishing until you tell me what to do. Nah, I'm just working until you give me more. No, Lord, I'm just chilling with my man until it's time to be, like, God knows if you're on point. God knows if you're off point. God knows if right now your faith is strong. God knows right now if your faith is weak. God knows if you're just at school to get a degree or if you're at school to get laced to be able to take what you get to impact people for his glory. God knows where you are. This trip, we were um, 
this last time I was out on the road, we rented cars that had a, a navigational system, a GPS, and it was banging because we were on the other side of the country, the West Coast. We don't have any sense of our bearings, but we never worry because we named her Judy. Uh, we gave her a name. We're like, yo, Judy, because she's like, uh, make right at the light. Like, we was like sitting here like, your left is coming up. And, and if you go off, it's like Judy knows where you are. You're now on such and such. You need to be on such and such. We were like, oh, man, praise God that Judy knows where we are because we don't. Fish can testify. And then when, like, so we're sitting here saying, man, it's good when somebody knows where we are, knows where we're supposed to be and can help us get there. God knows where you are. This is jewels for a journey. Now, if you ain't going nowhere, I know where you are, where you started. But if you all are getting laced with a whole year of John hearing about Jesus and then hear him say, now I'm sending you. I didn't just save you, but I'm sending you. God knows where you are in the process. He knows if you're afraid to go out. He knows if you, he's too distant for you in your heart. God knows where you are. Not only that, he knows what you're not. Listen what it says here. They went out and got into the boat. It says, they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They said, no. God knows what you're not. This is a fundamental Christian principle. Once again, these are jewels for the journey. The person who is saying, I'm going to leave Epiphany. I'm going to leave PBU. I'm going to leave Valley Forge. I'm going to leave Temple. I'm going to live my life like a dude or a dudette who's on mission with God. I'm going to act like I need to get it from above and I need to live my life as one who's allowing God to rule in my life and and, and, and express his will and desire through me. God knows what you're not. Look what it says. It says they did all they should do. They're fishing, so it says they went out, can't fish at home. They got into a boat, and they fished. They did all they should do. They did all they could do because they fished all night. You, if you go out, you get into a boat, and you fish all night, and you don't catch anything, what more can you do? God knows what you're not. Something in the Bible is replete, and that is that God has to bring us to the end of ourselves. He wants us to have a proper view of who we are and who we aren't so we can understand who he is. This is the DNA of the Christian. Us not forgetting that he's the potter and we're the clay, not the other way around. So, the, 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 so Paul says, wait a minute. The clay doesn't turn around and act like he's the potter. So I'm why why'd you make me like this? He says, Yo, he's the shepherd, we're the sheep. He's the light, we're just a reflection. He's God and we're man, woman. He's creator, we're creature. He's savior, we're the ones who get saved. We remember who he is and who we're not, because right now some of you have tried. You're on journey and nothing you're doing has worked. I know a couple of you who are like, I've done it. Like, I did it. I moved. I tried. I'm trying to get with people. I call. They don't call me back. I filled out applications. I looked for a crib. I saved my money. Then the car went out. God knows what you're not, and that is you're not all sufficient. 
you can do everything right, let alone those of us that we didn't go out and we're wondering why we don't have fish. We didn't stay out all night if we did go out. Bang, told you ain't no fish in here, and we back. This is a scenario where your best efforts come up short. Because this is, like the apostles say like this, a couple of verses to let you know. There's a group of Christians that understand that when we're not what we wish we were, and when we're not sufficient, that's when God likes to, he likes to get us to that point. 1 Corinthians 4.1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of of the mysteries of God, not masters, servants, not owners, but stewards. Like you say this, you say, I know that, but you don't know that. Like you don't feel that in your heart. Till you get to a position where you have to be a servant because you're clearly not a master, and you have to be a steward because you're clearly not an owner. Every now and then senior pastors will get beside themselves and they will think this is my church. Every now and then spiritual leaders who've got, I mean, when you have all of the stuff that comes with being successful, you'll think it's you. We're taught to excel in school. Why? Because to get in a degree is going to put us in a position to. He says that's good. But every now and then I got to let even your degree come up short. Every now and then I got to let the gift of gab you have not get you what you want. Every now and then I got to let the thing that you have that should give you what you want to, to run dry. 2 Corinthians 3, 4. Such is the confidence. Like God wants to reorient where our confidence is. We don't like it, but this is Christianity here. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in and ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. God wants to drain us of our ability. If they just would have went out as fishermen, caught fish, God couldn't leverage that as a time to tell them they need him in their ministry of fishing for men. Acts 3, 4, 6, I like the story of Peter at the gate, beautiful, says, uh, the lame man who looked up and said, hey, Pete, oh, now, you know, we're king's kids, you know, most people think that God's people should be laced and should be lavished, because after all, our God owns the cattle on a thousand hill, so we like, we should have some of that as his kids. Well, often in the Bible, God's kids are the poorest on the block, but they have something else, another resource, but I like this, he says, and Peter directed his gaze at him, fixed his eyes on him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Peter said, I have no silver, I have no gold, but what I do have is what I give you. That's what we keep trying to tell uh, this, this age. I may not have all the stuff that people say you're supposed to have, but what I do have is this. And then he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. I don't have the tangible signs that, of what this world's after, but I got a name. And in that name is everything people need. You just can't control the name, but we have access to that name. Acts 3, 11. Thank you, Shah. Acts 3, 11 to 13. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to him in the portico called Solomon, astounded. And when Peter saw it, now look, later on when people saw the dude walk, 
because of the, 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 the authority and the power of the name, they came to Peter ready to give him props, ready to give him dap, ready to probably make him somebody special like we would. And then he says, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, goodness, our righteousness, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. God wanted to make Jesus look like it's through him and his sufficiency that this man's insufficiency was settled. All I'm saying today is God knows what you're not. God knows what you don't have. We talk about us being chosen of God unconditionally. Unconditionally elected just means God didn't look and see anything about you that made him say, Oh, well, then I'll choose you then. Man, with those legs, oh, I'll choose you. As high as you could jump, well, I'll choose you then. Shoot, eloquent as you are, as righteous as you are. If anything, he chooses, man, look how unnoble you are. Look how weak you are. Look how inadequate you are. I'll take two. <laughs> not by my power, not by my goodness. The story is told, one of the popes talked to Thomas Aquinas said to him, hey, look, showed him the, the treasuries of the Vatican. Everybody know the Vatican is laced. Showed him the treasuries of the Vatican and said, look, no longer do we have to say silver and gold, have we not? And Thomas Aquinas said, yeah, and no longer are we able to say, get up and walk. Seems like the more we've got, Spiritually, the less we have. God knows what you're not. Next, God can when we can't. God can when we can't. Verse 6, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it. Because of the quantity of the fish. God can when we can't. After all night, which is the best time to fish. This is just like Luke 5. So if you've ever heard a sermon on Luke 5, basically this is Luke 5 all over again. Just a rehashing of Luke 5. They stay all night doing what they do, coming up short. And in an instant, during the least uh, strategic time to fish, daybreak and day, Jesus Christ does what they can't do. At any moment, God can turn it around. <laughs> like, that's the thing. Right when you're ready to give up, right when it's logical to give up, if you're feasting your eyes on Jesus, he says, I can. But I got to get you to the point where you say you can't. I got to bring you, I got to bring my people to the point, because I want glory out of it. So he says, well, I'll tell you how to do what you haven't been able to do. And it says here, they caught something. And then he does it in such stunning fashion that God proves that, and his supply is limitless. God can when you can't. 
John recognizes this because John was at the first time he did it at the beginning of their time of meeting Jesus. John immediately recognizes that's the Lord at work. Some of you are going to, you're going to say, Dad, when God does come through, you're going to say, that was the Lord. Like withholding from me till I, till I readjusted my expectation of God. Withholding from me until I reminded myself, he is my sufficiency. And so God says, if you're going to be on a journey with me, I'm going to often bring you to the point where you have to operate without the stuff that you would think you need in order to pull it off so that you'll lean on me and I can show up and magnify my sufficiency in light of your insufficiency. Jesus, even in evangelism, fishing for souls, we have to remember it won't be our eloquence, it won't be our catchiness, it won't be the fact that we had the right stuff, but it'll be because Jesus Christ, the fisher of men, says this is where you go, this is how you do it, and he will make sure that our success is his success and to his glory. Listen, God can when you can't, but also God includes you, but God doesn't need you. Let's look at this. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out and bread. It's funny. This is like, I, I laugh when I see this because he lets them fish all night and catch nothing. He asks them, yo, y'all got anything to eat? And they're like, no. He says, okay, why don't you throw it to the right? They get fish. Like, he could have came at, like, why didn't that come like when we were fishing at night? So we wouldn't have to be out here all night. You know what I mean? And then he waits till we fished all night. Bloodshot eyes probably coming back in. He tells him, you got any fish? We get fish. We get to the shore because it's the Lord. And he got a pan, a skillet, fish sizzling, bread to go with it. Like once again, Jesus demonstrating his... He, Like, what, is that, like, what does that do for y'all? Uh, he didn't need their fish. Y'all got any fish? Hey, hurry up. You mean, just throw it on the right. Come on, get the fish and let's go. I'm hungry. Well, he's not hungering anymore because he's resurrected. But he's also not telling them and doing this because he needs it. But he includes it. Look what he says here. He says, bring your fish. But when they get there, they see he already has fish. This isn't because he needs it. It's because he includes us. Look what it says. says, Simon Peter went aboard and, excuse me, uh, I don't want to miss the, Peter's zeal when he hears this, the Lord. Peter was stripped down. Now, once again, I'm talking about y'all who have put in the right effort. Some of us haven't put in the right effort. No wonder we don't have much. But some of us have been working hard. Peter was stripped down to his work gear. He had Speedos on only. But that's inappropriate in their culture to go up to Jesus in some Speedos like, what's good? Praise God for you. Is the fish ready? So it says he put on his outer garment, even though he was going to jump in the water and get it wet. You know, but that's the zeal. The zeal for Peter is, oh, man, hand me my jaw, my, my robe. Works. Jumps in, runs to Jesus Christ, recognizing it's the Lord. They bring the fish. He's zealous to get with this God who once again, time and time again, keeps doing it to them. Outdoing them. Outthinking them. A step ahead of them. 
And then it says here, they get there. He says, when Simon Peter saw was the Lord, put the outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off uh, from the land, but a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him who you are. They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. God includes us, but he doesn't need us. Psalm 50 says this, verse 7, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I'm God, you're God. It's not the other way around. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. Like you're bringing the stuff I asked you to bring. That's, that's everywhere. I will not accept the bull from your house or goats from your fold. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world in its fullness are mine. God requires it, but he doesn't need it. He says, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you, throw it on the right, bring your fish up, go find some wood, come on, let's get this thing cracking. He says, it's mine. I don't ask. I don't, I don't send you on mission because, come on, y'all got to help me. Like, I can't do all this by myself. That's why I invested in y'all. Haggai 1.7 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He had told them, like, basically they were sleeping on building his house. He says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. God says, I only include you because this is a delight thing, not a need. I delight when you obey. I take pleasure in it, but never get it twisted. I don't need you. And so if God has called you to himself today... It's going to be a journey. And on that journey, you've got to remember, God knows where you are. Not only does he know where you live demographically, but he knows where you are in your life. So you can't get over on God. He knows where you are. If you think he's overlooked you today, he knows where you are. I don't know if he feels near to you, but he's watching. He's attuned. He's aware. He knows what you're not. I don't know if anybody's struggling with unworthiness. Usually that's not the case. We think, I can't believe it. I mean, I'm such and such, and so it should be happening. But, if any, but then sometimes people feel unworthy. God says, I already know what you're not. You may feel inadequate. Maybe God has, is bringing you to the point where you're not, you don't feel inadequate enough <laughs> to respond Properly, So he's got to make you feel even more inadequate than you feel. He knows what you're not. You know, God is the type of God who he can even when we can't. And that's the beauty about God. He's not stuck like us. He doesn't run out of options. He's like, ah, 
Every now and then you're trying to open something and then you'll give it to somebody else and they can't open it and you give it to somebody else and they can't open it. And we like, Dad, nobody can open it. And he includes us. He doesn't need us. Right now, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if your soul doesn't cling to him, if you wouldn't categorize yourself as a born-again believer, this is the person that God demands that you put your faith in. And look, is he not qualified to take the soul that recognizes the first place I'm inadequate is to A, pay for my sins. B, the second place I'm inadequate is to achieve a righteousness. I can't remove my sin debt, nor can I do enough righteousness to make him forget my sin debt. The Bible says, well, you couldn't even fish. Like if, if He can make it so you can't even fish, let alone pay for sins. You can't even draw. You can't even dance. Like I can make it so that you can't even do the thing you think you can do. But I also can forgive sins. Trust in Christ today, y'all. And then those of you who are saved, reorient your life in light of the journey. And remember, God knows where you are. He knows what you're not. He can when you can't. And he's, he's decided for his own pleasure to include you. He doesn't need you. Let's respond properly to him. Father, you don't need us. We need you. You will rig circumstances to make sure that we cry out, oh, how I need you. You remind.